Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, I sat down with author and journalist Larry Smith, the creator of Six Word Memoirs. Larry and I talk about the project in its various iterations and how the concept came to be. We also go over his background, why we all want to tell stories, and the importance of mentors, which is a very familiar topic for listeners to the Confluence cast. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. The Confluence cast is sponsored by Art Makes Columbus, Columbus Makes Art, featuring stories about our city's incredible artists, stories full of inspiration, challenge, passion, and success. For videos, articles, an up-to-the-minute calendar of events, and an artist directory, visit columbusmakesart.com, the resource for all things arts and culture in the capital city. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down here with Larry Smith, the creator of the Six Word Memoir Project. Larry, how are you? I'm good. Nice to be with you today, Tim. Thank you. First of all, walk us through what is the Six Word Memoir Project. Well... First, I guess, what is a six-word memoir? Okay. And a six-word memoir, or sometimes referred to as six-word story, but that's a little different. The six-word memoir is a story about your life in exactly six words. Not less, not more, definitely not less, six words. And the idea is, if you had just six words to describe your life, how would you do it? it? It forces you to do, the limitation forces you to do a couple of things. Okay. One, you have to really think about what you want to say about your life. And we're all... We all like parameters. We really do. And even before the age of Twitter and Facebook status updates, which I guess have no parameter, right? or that I know of, I've never hit it, uh, <laughs> we, like, we like a box. I had started a more general user-generated content web magazine called Smith Magazine mm-hmm. about a year before I came up with a six-word memoir concept. And we didn't have parameters. It was just, hey, do you have a story about a, a crazy breakup? Put it on this section. Did you have a life-changing moment this section? And people liked it, and some people came to the site and got some attention. But and when, t- was, when was that? Oh, this was uh, January 2006. Okay. January 6, 2006, which is National Smith Day, one of those things that already exist, you know, Okay. Uh, based on uh, John Smith, one of the early founders of America, and there's, there was an adventurer named another Smith, and someone made Smith Day, and I'm looking for a day to launch. I thought, well, let's do it on National Smith Day, which was January, which is January 6th, and okay. we just celebrated uh, 11 years uh, with Smith Magazine and 10 years with six-word memoirs. Okay. And I launched this user-generated content website, and when I offered just one other idea, and people were getting nervous about in 2006. Larry, you're doing a user-generated content website. None of those words mean much to anyone. At that point, right. It didn't. You don't have a business plan. didn't. And how can you be, how can this be working? And the answer was it wasn't as a business. I was freelancing to get by. I, you know, I had a simpler life then. Mm -hmm. And then when I just popped another idea on the site, and my six words on that is, through spaghetti at wall, some stuck. Okay. So the story of six word memoirs. It was another bit of spaghetti. A little bit lucky, a little bit smart. And I said, okay, community, you know, small community that knows this project, Smith Magazine, this website. What if you had just six words to describe your life? And now you're thinking, Tim, why six? Okay. 
Some of the listeners know Y6 and some don't. And I believe I've read Y6. The Hemingway story. Right. And it is Hemingway's six-word story, and it was like a bar bet or something. It was something. a boy writing. Right. It's a literary legend. Did it happen? Did it not? We don't right. know. We've decided it's a legend, and maybe it did happen. And his, his six-word story was, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. I would like to assume not an autobiography for him, but simply a, I wrote a piece of literature that draws people in, and it was only six words. Exactly. And in the bar bet story, it's that... You know, Hemingway is known as this simple, muscular writer. Not a lot of fancy words, right? Simple prose, but beloved. People love Hemingway. And the idea was in the bar, but, oh, Hemingway, you're such a good writer. You write so simply. Well, write a whole novel in just six words. So for sale, baby shoes never worn. Now, if I ask a class of third graders, what does that mean? That's a little morose for a class of third graders. It is. I have done it actually for third graders, but I'm usually when I'm in classrooms, it's usually actually sort of seventh or eighth grade up through high school. But indeed, even third graders, like, hey, let's create a backstory. And they'll say things to me like, well, maybe, maybe the baby died, sure. Right. But then I think this was a third grader, might have been a fifth grader, but it was a pretty young kid said to me. And, you know, I've been in so many classrooms um, in the last 10 years talking about storytelling in six words. But somebody said to me something after years of doing this that I'd never heard. It was by a young kid. He said, well, maybe the child grew up too fast and felt like they never had a childhood. And I'm like, wow. (laughs) And that's the thing, right? It's those moments. And so what does a good six word do? Well, the Hemingway novel, it invokes you to say three more words. Tell me more. Right. You write the backstory in your head. And we can talk more about how I use backstories in live events uh, later, but a good six-worder will tell a story in and of itself. One tooth, one cavity, life's cruel. Okay. Ex-wife and contractor, now have house. Married by Elvis, divorced by Friday. How could you not want to know the backstory, right? Right. But even without that, and I don't know the backstory, that came in through the site sixwordmemoirs.com. Right. I, I will actually admit that I, I did email the writer looking for the backstory, no reply. Sometimes okay. they do, sometimes they don't. I really wanted to know. Right. But married by Elvis, divorced by Friday, we know what happened. There's a narrative arc. Right. You know, mom's Alzheimer's. She forgets. I remember. Every Alzheimer's story is different and singular to you and, and those you love. Right. But there's a relatable aspect in just those six words. This is what Alzheimer's does. This is what it does to the pure person around it. Exactly. Right? Cursed with cancer, blessed with friends. It's that mental like button. On the site, you can actually hit a button, a favorite, not like. Right. But, and that's what good storytelling does. It tells something about you, the storyteller, the protagonist in that story, you, your life. But then... There's a relatable, there's a universality to that, which someone says, yeah, me too, or not me, but my friend or my sister. And that's what connects us as humans, our stories. So let's step back a bit. You're a journalist by trade, is that correct? Okay. Went to school for it. Uh, Not really, but I was a single-minded, boring person, even through grade school, like fourth grade, the fourth grade newspaper, no other skills, always wanted to be a journalist. Okay. The big dream at some point was to be a film critic, because I love film. Uh And... Uh, and then I just, I just, you know, I just went into journalism. I went to uh, University of Pennsylvania. No journalism program there, but a great uh, school newspaper. Okay. And an English department and a history department. These are very good things for future journalists and storytellers. English and history. Right. And I just, you know, I hung out at the school paper. I was one of those guys, and um, and women. And 
I just got the bug, and that's all I wanted to do. Um, so I, I did, you know, there's a few different uh, routes to uh, becoming a, a journalist, I think, and, mm-hmm. and they, they haven't changed that much in, in the past uh, 20 years that I've been doing this. There is the get the worst job you can get at the best place you can get, mm-hmm. um, a fact checker, editorial assistant, maybe intern, hopefully paid, and you go and maybe you move to New York and you live with six friends in a one bedroom and all that. And, and here's our plug for the film Bright Lights, Big City. It's and totally Bright Lights, Big City, right. right? And that didn't not appeal to me, but San Francisco, having grown up on the East Coast, really appealed to me. Okay. Just because it was something different? It was just something different because I visited once as a kid with my family and I fell in love with the Fisherman's Wharf, never to go back there again because, <laughs> you know, you, you don't really go to Fisherman's Wharf. Right. I mean, it's actually not bad, but right. it's, you know, once you're a local... And I did the other route, which is I waited tables and said yes to every opportunity I could get. To write? To write. Okay. To, I was an intern at a weekly newspaper, and, and weekly newspapers were, they had, a lot of, they had a lot of energy, and they mm-hmm. were a compelling form of media back then. Right. The web overtook that. Weekly newspapers are struggling. They don't quite have the resonance and the mind share. Uh, so I was an intern at a weekly newspaper called the SF Weekly, which was mm-hmm. like, you know, like a little village voice, you know, and I yep. read the village voice in college and thought it was very cool. And I waited tables and I wrote pieces for $40 and $50 and no dollars. And I just made friends. And eventually I got some opportunities at national magazines. Uh, well, one one place I was... Um, pretty much volunteering for because we all did it was called Might Magazine okay and the real magazine geeks may know this it's Might right M-I-G-H-T M-I-G-H-T right and Might Magazine was Dave Eggers who wrote a heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius and Zaytoon and What is the What and all sorts of great things and now the proprietor of McSweeney's and now exactly McSweeney's and 826 Valencia which is a a literary literary um, non-profit for students it's like a community center around writing for for, uh, kids in the community Wonderful guy, and I remember when I met Dave Eggers, um, he had illustrated a, an overwrought piece I wrote about turning 20-something okay. for a weekly newspaper, which, look, it's, you know, it, you cringe to read your old writing. And Dave was the illustrator, because people don't know this about Dave, but he, he was a cartoonist and illustrator coming up in, okay. in his, his professional life. And uh, we didn't meet, but it was sort of somehow via the beginning of email. He's like, oh, I illustrated your piece, and I liked it, and I'm starting this new magazine called Might Magazine. It's going to be like a 20-something Harper's Magazine to tell people that 20-somethings are doing good things, too. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I, I got to know him, and I did some stuff for him. And after issue one, the most precious uh, issue of a magazine ever, right. we were like, God, what are we doing here? This is so precious. So then he started having fun. And then we came more like a 20-something spy magazine with smart articles and, okay. and uh, the more playful part of Harper's uh, or you know, the Village Voice or right. maybe Esquire in its glory days. So Dave started that. I said yes to Dave. And I always say in your 20s, you say yes. Right. In your 30s, you say maybe. And in your 40s, you have to say no a little bit. You start saying no. You start saying no. And you still say yes as much as you can. So I, got, I did some stuff with Mike Magazine. And a buddy from college started a uh, kind of a young men's magazine, which was like a combination of men's health and Forbes and, say, Outside Magazine. It okay. Was work Hard, Play Hard, called POV Magazine for a guy's point of view. And he started that, and I was doing stuff for him for a couple hundred bucks an issue. And then, lo and behold, he got funding. And he's like, hey, we got funding. And I was like, wow, that never happens. Right. And he said, do you want to move to the East Coast and be one of my editors? And, and that was it. I just uh, had been in San Francisco about six years. Okay. 
I had other jobs along the way, uh, journalism jobs. But this was the break. This was like, wow, magazines. Okay. Um, print magazines. Can you imagine that? And, right. Well, and, and so when was it that you moved back to the East Coast? In 1997. Okay. Yeah. And uh, we opened up in Boston. And the idea was we were going to open up in Boston. And uh, the whole staff worked in this converted fraternity house uh, okay. near uh, Fenway Park. We could see Fenway Park. And it was a genius idea he had because... Most of his staff came from out of town, from New York or me, San Francisco. We didn't really know anyone in Boston. So we were like, we were like real world magazine. We hung out together. We worked hours and hours. We drank together. We were in our, our, in our 20s. It was a little fraternity house. It was. Right. And we loved it. And I, these are still some of my best friends in the world. And we just worked and, and went out and we created this. And then he moved us to New York because that's where you had to be to, to be know, in the publishing. sales team and publishing. Right. And it lasted a while. And... Maxim Magazine uh, came on and did what we did, but not as smart, but had really pretty women on the cover. Right. And pretty much sent us out of business. Okay. We had a good run. Okay. You know, we had a good, we had a good, let's see, 97 through 2001. Okay. It wasn't bad. Yeah. For an independent magazine. Well, and employing people and... Employing you know. people and, and all those people. Here's what, another thing you don't know uh, when you have your, your first jobs and, and you're, you get laid off or your magazine folds or your startup... Uh, goes under. Right. What happens then is, and you don't think about this in those days that follow where you're crying into your beer and you're, oh my God. And, you know, and, and I've been there and it, it's horrible, but that good people get other jobs. And now we spread like spores. This person's at Esquire. This person's at Vanity Fair. This person's on this new website. And like, oh, wow. Um, now we, we're giving we each other assignments. Did, uh, we all did okay. Right. We did okay, but also we're helping each other. Now my network just amplified. And right. again, you just don't think about that. You're just bummed your thing went under. Well, and you're worried about making rent. And you absolutely are. Yeah. And so, and then you meet more people. And so there are, you know, failure uh, happens. Uh, my wife's own six-word memoir, one of her six-word memoirs is, you learn more from your failures. And uh, there's a lot to learn from the failures. Absolutely. So basically, that job went under. Yeah. What were you doing in the interim between that and Smith Mag? Uh, Just freelance. No, I went to. I went to. Be, I continued to be an editor. Uh, okay. I went to ESPN Magazine. Okay. Which was wonderful. Uh, I love sports and I love sports journalism and I love people who make it. And there's one real reason: if you can talk sports, you can talk to pretty much anyone. True. It's better than the weather. And <laughs> sports writers and journalists, in in my experience, are the least pretentious people in the world. Okay. And it was also a very, um, and it was some of the most diverse staffs I've been on, both in terms of gender and uh, race and ethnicity. Sports is a great equalizer, and I loved ESPN. And then I went to work at Yahoo Internet Life. Okay. Which, uh, imagine Wired Magazine, but like sort of with a little more of an entertainment weekly vibe to it and okay. sort of written more for your mom than that cool tech guy. You and it know? was a print publication as it well? It was print. It was a licensing deal with Yahoo. Okay. And we had a good run <laughs> for a little while there. But it turns out a, ma a print magazine about the internet is not destined to uh, survive. Right. And so it didn't. But I was um, always into tech culture. Okay. So even at ESPN, I was the guy who's like, let's ask athletes for their bookmarks. We'll call it jock marks. This was an innovative idea in the year 2000, right? Right. And that idea of, I'm not that fascinated by the gadgets, but how technology changes our lives, how it amplifies our lives, well, how, how we it, use it. And for you, how it was changing the game. It was changing the game. And it was a Yahoo Internet Life where I had the purse to see, oh, now we're in like 2001 now, 2002, okay. right? I absolutely 
had the window to see the user-generated content explosion coming. I had the window to see that, of course, we all want to tell stories. We've been doing right. this since cavemen grunting. Well, and are you seeing that because it's the, you know, the comments on articles and stuff? It's the people who are trying to contribute to the story that you've already written early, or edited? Early chat rooms okay. and seeing it on things like I edited the first national magazine piece on blogs. Okay. It was, it's in Wikipedia. Uh, I didn't go. know it was at the time, but, uh, you know, I, and the truth is, this is the way a, a lot of good ventures run, which is our youngest people at Yahoo Internet Life, we were all pretty young, mm -hmm. they were the ones who knew about blogs first. Okay. You know, and at ESPN Magazine, the youngest reporters were really on the forefront. Now, we helped them edit and shape, and we had vision, but right. you, you've got to listen to people, you know, well, who are out there in the world. Well, and is it because they frankly have more time in order to do that and they're not mired by oh i've got the their rent is less and i think so they have more time and they're just they're you know they're just like give it to me they're checking everything out okay you know, maybe that's part of the time thing they dive deeper they dive deeper and they're they're so add that they're, they have so many interests and some of those interests are going to be really interesting to other people and that's the editor's job right to pluck those out right so i saw the blog thing happen you know facebook wasn't around yet instagram wasn't but also you saw um the smartphones start to come. And so mm -hmm. many false starts, Palm Pilots and things. But I remember my editor-in-chief, who actually had come from TV Guide and Playboy. That's an interesting background. He was during the great 70s Playboy when it was this wonderful magazine. And uh -huh. TV Guide, when it was really important, you know, as, right. a, as a way to make sense of TV. He kept saying, what's the holy grail? What's the holy grail? And, and you know, we knew it was some sort of phone. But again, it wasn't it wasn't that obvious that it would, what would be the thing? And, right. and at least to us. And so... What we saw happening, which is now so blatantly obvious, is this. We all want to tell stories. If you give people simple tools that anyone can use and then a place to share them, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Six Word Memoirs, and many others, they will do it. And so then that's the impetus for Smith Mag. Exactly. Okay. Just to sort of put out prompts for people and say, tell me about this if you have a story about it. Exactly. And in uh, from 2003 to 2006... I went around to the big media companies because I had the contacts. And I had a beautiful prototype. And I said, listen, user-generated content is changing the world. And I want to do kind of a high-end magazine, a print magazine, with a daily uh, digital version. And I described it like this. The, the print magazine, and maybe it would be monthly, maybe it would be like six times a year, kind of thick paper, kind of a monocle or McSweeney's thing. Right. I wasn't sure, but we did have a prototype that's still, you know, in a basement somewhere. Right. so nice, though. I can't part with it. The print will have a blog energy, and the web will have a professional curation and design. And if you give people a place to share stories, and it looks pro, they'll mm -hmm. rise to the occasion. And then if there's a right. the of some of these stories will end up in a magazine. That's exciting. Now, what happened was it turns out to be books. But I'll tell you one more story. Here's the moment I knew I was not going to get any funding for this, at least from the traditional places. Okay. I'm in Time Inc., big meeting, right? And I'm in with the number two editorial person at Time Inc., you know, a woman who had started many magazines, super smart. And this is someone who is able to make decisions about what moves forward. Absolutely. And I said what I just said to you, which is, you know, it would have a, a blog energy. The print would have a blog energy. And she looked at me and she said, and this is 2003, what's a blog? Now, okay, my mom in 2003 shouldn't know what a blog is or didn't. Right. But, but she should have. Right. And at that moment, I thought, I'm never going to get this funded because the rest of the people who can greenlight this, it's not where they are. If you have to translate that to them, 
We're so, we're so far apart. Right. Yeah. So after a few years of thinking, I needed to get the big money to do this. And I'm, that's the way I'm used to working, you know, with big magazines and budgets and fancy designers, and, which is a great way to work if you can. Uh, I listened to people like Dave Eggers, who started my magazine on fumes, like a woman named Shoshana Berger, who started another great gone magazine called Ready Made, which is like the DIY. Oh, yeah. You know, Ready Made, DIY yeah. Martha Stewart. And others who said, just start. They said, Larry, you're very familiar with this thing called the web. It turns out you are. And what can happen on there for very little money? And so I did. A friend donated server space. Mm-hmm. And we just cobbled together this website with my partner who did all the tech and design. And we launched Smith Magazine on uh, January 6, 2006. There you go. And so talk about, was Six Word Memoirs originally just a prompt on Smith Mag, and then you you were like, oh, this is going to be... Exactly. Smith was one part, uh, Six Word Memoirs was one part of Smith Mag, mm-hmm. and for a while I kept the rest of it around, and it's still in an archive, but right. eventually I thought, well, Six Words is really working, so go with that, and then use that perch of what Six Words can do and... and uh, how much people really enjoy the form of, format of six words. To do the other things I want to do, to do backstories. Okay. So you can do a backstory after your six words, if you like, on the site, to do events. So let's talk more about the backstory. You've crafted six words, whether that be something that's autobiographical, whether that be something that's simply compelling, or whether it be something about your city or the environment that you're in. Or even something very much in the moment. Uh, and we did a book, Six Word Memoirs by Teens, and teens are very much in the moment. And one of the six word memoirs I put in there and I often share is, I seriously love bean burritos. That's just his life story, you know? And it's not the whole story. It's not right. Mario Batali's brought it to a boil often, you know, the celebrity chef, and brought it to a boil often is a great summation of Mario Batali's life. Right. It's a different little slice of the life. Right. And so what... How do you do the backstories then? Is that simply through events? Is it well, what people happened, interpreting what, what somebody was, wrote? What happened was when we first launched Six Word Memoirs, when we first launched Six Word Memoirs, by the way, it was just a one-month contest. I just thought it would be another thing on the right. site for a little run. I had met these guys starting this goofy new thing called Twitter at a conference uh, a few months before. And Twitter didn't even have all the E's in it back then. It was like Flickr and that whole thing without the E's. Right. And... Uh, we were talking a little bit about storytelling in short form, and we just chatted, and I got, I got like, Jack Dorsey's card. And he said, well, you'd ever think of something to do together, you know, give a call. So I did. Like, you could call Twitter in 2006, and Jack would be like, hi, I'm one of three people in the office. Right. And we launched Six Words together. Okay. And, at, yeah, and the thing was, we were giving away an iPod, which was a good present in uh, 2006. Right. And I went and totally bought it myself. There was no, like, sponsorship. And... Anyone could enter. And uh, so for, for Twitter, it was sort of a, hey, we can use this on our platform because yeah. it is only, you know, at the time, Twitter was focused a lot on text messaging because yeah. you could receive tweets from other people via text as like an alert. And there was no storytelling on Twitter. Okay. I mean, I don't say that out of some like ego, it's just the truth. And you had to follow us on Twitter to win the iPod, but anyone could otherwise submit just to the site. And so there so, you're building up your user base. Completely. And it's so funny. I have this awesome screen grab of a newsletter Twitter sent out in January 2007. Mm-hmm. And it's just so funny in hindsight. We are so delighted to announce our first ever corporate partnership with Smith Mag, which is now 
and I kid you not, it was at SmithMagnot.6 words, which is now the most popular handle on Twitter, or, or has the most followers. I had like 2,000 followers. So for a little moment, Tim, right. I was Shaquille O'Neal, or, <laughs> you know, Britney Spears with, you know, my 2,000 followers. I was number one. I've got a newsletter to prove it. I spoke at Twitter a few years ago, and I showed him that. And, you know, and it was sort of like, a, like, on the one hand, like, amazing. On the other hand, like, huh, maybe I should have built this up a little more. But uh, we did it with them. The early adopters spread the word. And, you know, if that had been it, even despite Twitter's growth, I wouldn't be talking to you 10 years later. It would have been a coastal thing, a hot or not thing, a flash in the pan. Right. But I started getting some attention uh, from the Columbus Post-Dispatch, which is one of the first city newspapers to write about uh, six-word memoirs. I still have that piece. And other places that weren't just Coast and D.C. and L.A. And, uh, and now we had submissions from all across the country, and we really had a sustainable storytelling idea, not just uh, people who really want to be writers are in tech, which is how it started, and that's great. And that's why I love it, because I was trying to create a populist storytelling platform with Smith Magazine, and with the six-word form and all the things it can do and continues to do, I really have that, a populist storytelling platform. And Six Words became um, more than just uh, a literary device and a way to tell a short story, but a tool to do so many other things. Okay, so talk to me about, I just want to get back to the backstory. And so what do those backstories look like? Is it crafted by you? Is it someone who wrote a six word memoir telling why they did this? Or is it something that simply lives in the consumer's mind of what could this mean? I think all of the above. Okay. So on the site, we noticed before we had a, an option to write a backstory, and now you can put a photo or an, and a backstory and or a backstory, and uh, the writer of a memoir would sometimes leave the first comment and tell the backstory. Okay. We're like, oh, well, and you, you, know, you have to always listen to your community, especially if you like the direction they're going. I said, oh, well, if you want to do that guys, right. then we'll create a backstory button. So there's a little box now. And, you know, maybe 10% of the people write a backstory. Sometimes it's a line. Sometimes it's five, 600 words. And so literally it's something that the six-word memoir can live on its own. Yeah. Or you can provide context for exactly. it. Exactly. And then every week we do the backstories of the week on the site and we, t- you know, we tweet some out and we put some on Facebook. So that's one way. The backstory, as you said, can live in the reader's mind. And that's really fun. Mm-hmm. Is and- it ever something where that generates content as well? where someone is interpreting a story? In the comments, yeah. Okay. They do that. And they say, you know, they and they tell their own version of that story. And absolutely. And then one of the most meaningful and fun uh, parts of my work is the backstory shows. Okay. So at these events, which we do at places such as the Black Box at the Wexner, the upcoming one on March 1st at Shadowbox Live. Mm-hmm. I've done them in alleys during literary festivals, and I've done them on houseboats, upper deck. Okay. Um, we have a number of storytellers, usually between six and eight. They start with a six-word memoir on a theme, love, religion, creative life, Columbus, and then they reveal the backstory in usually six to ten minutes. Got it. And uh, they don't use notes. It's sort of like the moth, which right. many of your listeners have heard on, on NPR and elsewhere. They tell the backstory, and usually I coach them. Okay. So you've got a TEDx or TED-level professionalism is the idea, okay. and it usually works. And they, these storytellers work very hard, and I try to do a mix in terms of the performers, the storytellers of maybe a couple people you know, you know, in the community or out in the world, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit known. Someone who's never been on a stage before, who is probably frightened, and right. usually the person who gets through that, that evening or afternoon and says, 
I am so glad I did this. Mm-hmm. Slash, I'm so glad you just forced, you just kept bugging me until I said yes. Right. And then people who are just the kind of people you, you know, your friends you see in bars, and you just, God, I, I love hearing Tim's stories. Those guys, you know? Right. Those guys, those women, those kids. And maybe they've never actually told the story on a stage. Maybe they have. So it's a mix. Yeah. And I love that mix. Again, you can check out the next Six Words event, March 1st, at Shadowbox Live. It's a very special story show. It's, it's a, a one... Uh, it's it's a story show unlike ever I've done before. I've never done before. Okay, that's the theme basically. Well, the theme is student mentor. Okay. So on this evening we will have eight students. Okay. From Columbus or the vicinity, coached by eight people in the community. Okay. So there'll be about four spoken word stories, classic storytelling. There will be a few songs, coached by Ben Shineberry. He'll mm-hmm. he'll coach one from the Dick and Jane Project. Joseph Barker, who runs Musicology, which is uh. They teach uh, music lessons to kids. Right. Uh, he'll be he'll be coaching a couple of kids, and then there'll be a show poster that Marshall Short, a wonderful designer, he's working with um, a, a young man to make the poster. Oh, okay. Kita Mascara, my videographer, is working with a young videographer. So every element of the show, from the, what's happening on the stage, what's happening in the background, will be mentors and students working together. That's great. Was that inspired by something? It was. It was inspired really. Um, I've been thinking about. I always like because the have- other events have been general in that it's all the same format of show. Yeah, and it's been things like loss or dedication or conviction. Yeah, or, yeah. Well, it was inspired by occasionally we'll have a student or a teen as one of the seven or eight storytellers, just because that's the way it worked out. Mm-hmm. And they've always been really meaningful and. The applause in the audience is for a few reasons. One, the story was good. But two, like, they know it's hard, especially if, you know, often if you're younger and not used to public speaking. And then I did a show last May. uh, The theme was Columbus, my first real live event in Columbus. And we had two storytellers who were in that kind of student mentor way. One wasn't a student, but Shannon Wilson, 15 months before that show, was incarcerated. Okay. And she got out of prison and went to work at Hot Chicken Takeover with some steps and help to get there. And, you know, Joe DeLoss was so important to her. And I met Shannon, and um, she told her story of, you know, basically that story of 15 months ago, I was incarcerated, and now I've had my fifth promotion, Hot Chicken Takeover. And I said, Joe, you know what? Would you introduce her rather than me? Like, wouldn't that be nice? Okay. Plus, it's always good to have Joe DeLoss on a stage. You know, right. so handsome and smart, you know. Phil, he's a draw. He is a draw. And so Joe said, sure, this would be great. It's the easiest speaking gig I've ever had. I just talked for a minute about someone who I admire so much. Right. And so we did that. And Shannon was just so wonderful. And then later in the show, a young woman named Chloe White, who I think had just turned 16, from the ACPA School, the Arts College Preparatory Academy, mm-hmm. where, where Ben Shineberry is also development director, Chloe sung an original song called I'm Best Friends with My City. And I didn't coach her because I don't know how to coach a guitar. Singer, right. But I, t- you know, I helped her get ready and sort of mentally for that kind of thing. But she had a lot of mentors in her life. And Chloe was so real and so raw. And I think she just ended her song just in tears and the audience is in tears. And the roar from the crowd that went up when she finished, the standing ovation, I thought, not at that moment, but later, I want seven of these. I want seven students. I want seven Shannon Wilsons who have had help from someone in their lives. And mentors are so important. That simple idea we hear over, over, over again, but when you see it in action, one person can change your life. I thought, 
let's do that. Let's tell the, the bigger story of mentorship, and let's just see seven or eight um, pairs of people working together right in action. That's great. Walk us through Six in the City. I got to Columbus on a very cold day in January 2015. Okay. And I knew two people a little bit. You were just visiting at that point. No, we had moved. Okay. We had moved here. Um, don't move and to we'll, Colum- And we'll get back don't into why. Don't move to Columbus in January. That's my sixth word. What were we thinking? <laughs> Three degrees. Was that, re- you know, remember that brutal winter two years yes. ago? This, is a, this one's a piece of cake. Uh, we moved on a very cold day, and I really didn't know. I knew a couple of people, lovely people, but, you know, two acquaintances. I'm like, huh, what's this place all about? My wife... Uh, asked me to move and I was happy to do it. I had visited once and I liked it. And why not? You know, you just got to roll where life takes you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's kind of a trick. How would you describe something, right? Like, tell me about Columbus. Well, I don't know where to start. Or I don't know where to end, right? I'm like, well, I do this thing called six-word memoirs. See, I'm wearing a T-shirt. It says, now I obsessively count the words or so much crying, the baby too, which I wrote when my son was three months old and put that on a T-shirt. So that's what I do. And it's, you know, it's, it's a conversation starter, right. ice brick. Well, tell me about Columbus in six words. I was just using it as just kind of a riff. And, and um, my, uh, my friend Ken Hughes said, bi-coastal arrogance ends here in Columbus. Bi-coastal arrogance ends here in Columbus. Hmm. And Lisa Schneider said, no cows, really zero effing cows, mm-hmm. right? And Julie Harrison said, small size makes big impact possible. I was like, wow, we have just encapsulated encapsulated many ideas of Columbus. Right. And I had on one of those, you know, lists of things I want to do that you keep moving from notebook to notebook or Evernote to Evernote. Yep. uh, An idea called Six in the City. What if I took everything I've learned about how six words works uh, in schools, digitally, in photographs, in backstories, in in houses of faith and corporations, and moved it in festivals, uh, street festivals, Six Words is Great at a street festival. What if we moved it through a city in an organized way to tell the story of the city, not from the top down, from the mayor's office, and that's fine, or, you know, the the people, you know, who, who are best known, but from the bottom up. And we tell the story of a city together and we get those other people who are the known people in the city we want their story too right and but it goes back to your event you want a mix it is the total citizenry contributing exactly to it. the mayor and you know a girl at south high who said in front of a hundred peers yes i'm pregnant but i'm graduating and she got applause because she owned her story and i'd always wanted to start this in some city and columbus just organically became, I mean, it's so obvious now, right? The community here, the Columbus says yes vibe, the cooperation and, oh, you got to meet this person and that person. I mean, I didn't know, you know, I mean, I knew about Midwestern charm and kindness. And by the way, Josh Radner, the Prince of Bexley says in six (laughs) words, Midwesterners are kind, no small thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I realized that what was going on with the community here, and that's a big word in my work and a big word in Columbus, and I know your work. Yeah. Uh, this was the place to launch Sixth and City Columbus. So I just sort of started it, and um, it's been a little over a year now, and it's, it's been wonderful. Have you done it in other cities at this no, point? No, this was the first okay. city. I'm curious to hear how it goes over in other cities. Like, yeah. I'm sure it'll do well, but I'm interested to hear how much we like to say that we are, you know, a city that says, yes, we are smart, we are open, we are collaborative. I would like to think that that's unique to us. And I'm interested to hear. We'll see, won't we? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting because the only two cities that I know uh, well 
that have the pride of Columbus that mm-hmm. loves itself as much as Columbus, and I mean that as a compliment, yeah. are Brooklyn uh-huh. uh, and New Orleans. Okay. And Brooklyn's a little different. So I'm interested, like, go down to Louisville and like, right. see what happens there. Yeah. And like, do they just talk about, you know, the bat factory? Right. And the bourbon, right? And and you know, Louisville would be interesting. I think, you know, I think that um, Nashville would be an interesting city. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I think it does make sense. And this is, you know, when, when, I got, when I got to town and, you know, one of the first people I met was David All, you know, which was lucky mm-hmm. from Civic Hacks. And he said, well, you know, dude, it's Test City USA. And I'm like, I actually didn't know that. And so it is. And people right. test things here. And testing Six in the City here, almost a prototype, it really was a, a stroke of luck that I, I landed here because I really i am so interested in community and I love cities. You know, I learned a lot about what makes it work. And, and fortunately, because uh, Columbus is, was so open to this and into it, um, I think it worked very well. And so the next city hopefully should be easier, though that city may be harder because Columbus right. is special in that way. But I've learned a lot um, on, on uh, my time doing Six in the City, Columbus. Talk about how you guys made the decision to move here because you were living in Brooklyn. Yeah, no, the usual way. Okay. Um, my wife wanted to teach writing in a prison. So, <laughs> so uh, oh, yeah. that old trope. So uh, my wife is Piper Kerman and she wrote the memoir Orange is the New Black, which right. became the TV show. And she's very uh, interested in helping other people tell their story, as am I, as but you in are, different right. ways. And she's very interested in criminal justice and criminal justice reform. And mm-hmm. one of the ways you change hearts and minds is hearing people's stories, right? And as she was thinking about what she wanted to do next with her own work, she was Because you guys had a four-year-old at, at that point. Yeah. So it's sort of like, okay, now's an easy time to move. Right, exactly. You're not uprooting a, a four-year-old. Yeah, so... A f- few years before we moved here, maybe a year, she was invited to speak at a TEDx in the Marion Correctional okay. Institution. She was like, really? A TEDx in a prison? She'd never heard of this. And right. nobody had because they were the first ones to do it. Right. And now uh, TEDx's in prisons is, is happening many places, but mm-hmm. that, that started at Marion. And the prisoners ran the TEDx. They did all the AV and the coaching. And the TEDx was a combination of prisoners and guards and then from the inside and then outsiders, people come in and teach yoga and poetry and writing and this kind of thing. And people who weren't associated with Marion, like Piper, but who were in the world of, of the prison world and prison right. reform. So she's like, OK. So she goes, she goes. Because in addition to her memoir, she's done advocacy work yeah. for that. Right. Yeah. She's done a ton. Um, it's really what her life is about now. Um, wasn't the plan. She didn't plan on A, committing a crime and B, going to prison and C, writing a book. But all those things happened. And so she made the best out of a, a, some poor decisions when she was younger. Yeah. And so she comes back from the TEDx. And she's like, this very interesting place over there at Marion Correctional. And actually, they're doing a play in a couple months. They invited me back to play. So she goes back to the play. She's like, you know, written and directed by a prisoner and, you know, acted out by, the, by the, an original play. Okay. Then she said, you know what? I think I want to spend some time there. Maybe do a book about that prison. Maybe teach in the prison. I said, okay. And she said, well, how do you feel about moving to Ohio? But we would move to Columbus because that's, you know, a larger metropolitan area. We need that. You know, I was I thought, why not? You know, we've been in Brooklyn for 14 years. Change is good. And I don't know. I think 
I think that conversation was a shorter conversation than sometimes when we just takes longer to pick where to go to dinner. You know, right. and I just at the moment I was open to it. I was, I was you were being, like, I was being smart and open. We're Why not? Able to do that? Yeah. Why not just do it? Yeah. So that's how we got here, and I just dove into the community. I'm not good at just sitting still. You right. know, I got to know people. I'm social. I love to share my work. I love to see other people. Uh, change my work and I love collaboration and that's what I've been doing for two years. Can you talk about sort of the business aspect of Six Word Memoirs? There's some revenue generation from the events, I imagine. Let's, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> do you do like t-shirt sales? We have t-shirts, okay. uh, but the revenue largely comes from almost anyone who does live events, unless they really do it as a bigger company, knows it's a terrible way to make money. If you ever really yes, like, it is. like cruise through the time, you know, Tim, yeah. like you, you don't, you don't, you don't add your time because then you just get sad. But uh, <laughs> I love the live events. We don't lose money. We uh, make books of six word memoirs. Okay. Uh, I've done eight collections of six word memoirs. And the ninth book, which I'm Cooking now, it's an intense uh, due date, it's coming soon, is Six Words on Immigration, Identity, and Coming to America. Uh-huh. It's a book. And you do I, a lot of photography with that one too, we, right? We're going to be doing more photography with this book than any other book for sure. Okay. And uh, this was an idea that I had uh, before the, the current election of uh, Donald Trump. And after he was elected, the idea was suddenly so much more timely and important because of his views on immigration. And that'll be out in September. And mm-hmm. That's a collaboration with the TV show Fresh Off the Boat, which is my first ever TV collaboration, which is which is a kick, and, and they're great. It's a it's um, a show about a, a family who uh, came, uh, a Chinese family who immigrated, and the the parents own a restaurant, and the kids are all young and hip hoppy. So there's a whole like you know tale of two cultures. And this is a reality show, narrative show. It's it's a narrative show. It's based on a memoir by okay. Eddie Huang uh, called Fresh Off the Boat. Okay, but it's you know, but it's. Uh, it's a narrative show, and it's 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 um when I'm in schools, uh, and I was just in a bunch of schools the last uh, few weeks with high school kids, and I say, hey, we're doing a new book on immigration. It's a collaboration with Fresh Off the Boat. The kids cheer; they love this show. Okay, you know. So, but to the answer on the revenue. So, so that book will be out in September, and so we we make books. Uh, we do have things like T-shirts. Mm-hmm. I do sometimes. I'll, someone will want to use the six-word memoir form. Uh, for their business and maybe some, you'll go out and do a workshop i do i do i do workshops speaking cor- engagements yeah corporate right. workshops nonprofit workshops speaking workshops so so it's um it's it's a it's a, a scattered revenue streams but it works right and, um, well but the, and there's some hustle to it the hustle and the I, hustle is i imagine fun. you represent yourself i do well okay. i have a speaking uh, agent Smart. and i have a book agent so that stuff the pro stuff like it's good they they know how to do those things you right know, they know how to i actually don't want to start like cold calling people on on speaking but you know once in a while you meet someone in a conference or somebody called me he was on a plane and he said to somebody they just got to talking oh well my company's doing a conference uh did your company ever have any good speakers and i I had just spoken to that company it was a design conference and his thing was a hotel conference totally different but like you never know but it works i mean you can translate it so so you gotta always show up when you have your gigs right because you never know where that's gonna go but i like that and you know i might be at something as corporate as a conference of supermarket owners Okay. I kid you not. In the Cayman Islands, by the way, which is like, that's great. And so at a fancy hotel, the Ritz, and like, and I'm like, why, why do they want me to speak? And it was, it was this. This group of supermarkets was told by consultants or somebody, um, look, you need to be more like Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. The vibe, the employees like each other, or at least it seems like that. Right. The community vibe, and you, you need to do that. And so you need some team building. 
and you need some ways to connect to your customers, you know, not just employee of the month, you know, right. Sally's, Sally's little bio under there. So I'm like, okay. So I go, I'm in this big ballroom in the Cayman Islands. And like, here's the truth. That audience sees me as what stands between them and golfing or going to the beach. I understand. Like, okay. hey, they don't want to be there, you know. So it's a tough room. And it's one of my earlier speaking gigs. Well, and you're also sort of telling them how to do their job. Yeah, but I have a sneaky way to not make that sound like condescending. But okay. like I say, I have this tool and it worked for me. And here's some ideas. Once you understand how this tool works, it really is a tool to spark expression and, and build community. You'll come up with things I never thought of because you're the experts in the supermarket business. And that Smart. is, by the way, the truth. And same deal if you're to veterinarians, like not veterans, which we also work with, but veterinarians you know, cats and right. dogs and, and ferrets, um, they know their business. I have a tool, you know. So I'm doing, I'm doing my talk, and it's always interactive. So there'll be a point where we stop and share our own six-word memoir. If it's a corporate thing, it might be, um, why do I do what I do? Right. And here's where the win comes for the person who hired me, right? We're doing, why do I do what I do in six words? Why do I, why do I own a supermarket? And, you know, going around the room and bigger rooms are weirdly harder because if there's 40 people in a room, everyone contributes. If there's right. 400, people will hide. And you might also only get 40, usually more like 60 or 100. But and people are like, you know, dad's market now is mine. That's nice. And because the butcher makes me smile or something, it's like these kind of things. Right. You know, loyal customers open my heart. Fine. Good. OK. People relate to that. That's nice. But this was the moment when, you know, we had them, which is this one, one of the few women in in the audience is like, hi, I'm Sally. I own uh, three, um, three supermarkets in Connecticut. Uh -huh. And my six words are, why are you screaming? It's detergent. And the room <laughs> erupts. And here's why. Because there's a commonality. Right. Nobody knows what your weird life is as a supermarket owner than the other people. Right. And some lunatic in aisle nine is flipping out about detergent. Right. And that's it. So it's like, you know what? We're all in this together. And you could be with hospice workers, which I've been, or veterans, or veterinarians, or uh, I did a conference of, of therapists who specialize in using play as therapy. Mm -hmm. And they, nobody gets you like the other people in the room. And all right. I did was give them a tool and lead them to that point, And then they can go golfing. Well, and I think that that shows the the value of that's of the value what do you, what you do, and that's that's a word that at some point I realized I don't know when I realized that, but I thought we don't just have a fun literary idea that's fun for the web and to make books. We actually have a valuable tool, and I love teaching that tool, and I love seeing that tool in action. Great, Larry, thank you so much for your time. Tim, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite storyteller. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week. Confluence Cast.